you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke, chapter 16. This morning, Lord willing, I'm going to read the first 15 verses, and this is the section that we're going to be considering together this morning. So Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of God. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Before we consider this passage together, uh, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we, we do ask that you will teach us how to pray. We ask that your Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us. Help us to uh, learn this discipline. Help us to be faithful in it. Lord, help us to honor you by acknowledging our dependence, uh, by acknowledging our sin. And Lord, help us to uh, acknowledge and honor and esteem you by asking and seeking for forgiveness, by asking and seeking your kingdom, uh, by asking and seeking that your name be seen to be holy as it really is, that your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us by your spirit and by your grace to be children who know how to talk 
appropriately and respectfully to their Heavenly Father. Help us to learn the delight and the joy of walking closely with you. Father, we pray that you will draw us away from the world, draw us away from sin, draw us into your holy presence, and make us holy, fit us to be there with you. Lord, we would ask that this morning, as we have finished singing, that you really will speak and that we will, in our hearts, hear your voice, that you will feed us by your word. Lord, we we come in a group this size. We know that there are people from all all different backgrounds and all different life circumstances, the young and the old, some who uh, feel great, some who feel sick, some who are encouraged, some who are discouraged, some who who feel very, very close to you, others who feel that you are very far away. Lord, your spirit and your word alone is sufficient to reach everyone where they are. And so we commit ourselves to you. We commit every heart to you, young and old. Uh, We know that you are greater than any of our circumstances. We know that you are a great God, that you even care about sparrows, and that we are worth more than many sparrows to you. So, Father, help us this morning to feel your glory, the weight of it, uh, the immensity of your love. And Lord, also help us to feel your holiness and your righteousness. And may we be drawn to you through Jesus. Help us to see our need of him and to love him. For we ask this in his holy name. Amen. Now, uh, Mary, uh, this morning, drew your attention to some of the events that are coming up. And we thank her for doing so. And I just want to draw your attention to uh, two services that are coming up that are going to be taking place on Sundays here uh, at the church. December 4th is Poinsettia Sunday. And that's a Sunday when I first came here. I, I heard about it, didn't quite know what it would be like. Uh, but it's, if you've been here before on Poinsettia Sunday, you know that it's, it's a very beautiful service, uh, very meaningful. Uh, people lay poinsettias around the auditorium, uh, to, in memory of those who have uh, passed away. And it, uh, causes us to remember and reflect on the brevity of life and the gift of life and the offer of eternal life and the fact that, uh, it is appointed once for us to die and after that to face the judgment to stand before the Lord. Uh, but also very beautifully for the Christmas season fills up this space uh, with beautiful poinsettia plants. So it's December 4th. Uh, the poinsettia orders do need to go in. There's a lot of work that's involved. And so uh, Wendy Willis, just here in the front of you, just, just put your hand up. So most of you know Wendy, but if you're interested in uh, laying a poinsettia on that Sunday, please see Wendy uh, as soon as possible. Another service that I want to mention is in two weeks. And it's a mission-focused Sunday. The missions committee decided last year, instead of trying to have just one uh, missions conference weekend, that we were going to have a few mission Sundays throughout the year. In two weeks, we're having one of those. We're going to be hearing about an update, about a project that we were involved in in Zambia. And for the Sunday school uh, period for my class, I'm going to be uh, going over the trip that I had to Cuba and uh, talking about the teaching opportunity that I had there, trying to give a bit of perspective on what God is doing in terms of pastor education around the world. So that's going to be a special time focusing on the mission uh, that the church is involved in here as part of the mission of God around the world. Now this morning, we are in this section that I read, and I've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and so now this is just the next text in queue that we come to. Uh, The last one that we looked at, of course, was 
The parable of the prodigal son, uh, Luke 15. Last week, Pastor Sam uh, preached from Psalm 73. The week before that, I was in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And there has been no parable that has received more commentary than the parable of the prodigal son. So it's probably our, our best known parable. I mean, the good Samaritan and the prodigal son are the two that are by far the best known parables of Jesus. Uh, the prodigal son is all kinds of art d- depictions and artistic representations. And so we sort of move from that most common, most familiar of all passages to this one. And uh, this one is not quite as well known as the parable of the prodigal son. And so we, we land here, and I think it is fair to say that this one, for some, is one of the most puzzling parables that Jesus tells. So you sort of move from the most familiar, one of the most beloved, to this one. And you think, what on, what on earth is, is Jesus saying here? I mean, what is it that this parable is supposed to be teaching us? It almost seems that in a sense, you know, the the positive role model is this dirty crook, you know. And so how is it that he's commended? I and mean, this doesn't seem to really line up with the ethics of Jesus. So we're going to understand this. We're just going to have to think it through a little bit. And I think that it's actually not all that difficult. Uh, Jesus himself will give you the point uh, at the end. And it's always very helpful, you know, when you when you don't understand something, just keep reading. Uh, just keep listening, and uh, if Jesus has said something, he'll help you out. Uh, he'll he'll get you there in the end. So Jesus constructs this this story, and the back story is that there's this manager, and we don't know exactly what he's done, but he has wasted his master's money. And there comes a time where no matter how much you've tried to keep the books in a certain way, no matter how much you've tried to, you know, extort or embezzle or whatever it is, even if you've just been absolutely ludicrously extravagant and wasteful, a day of reckoning comes, and that day has come. And the master brings this manager or this steward, servant, in, and he says, you know what, you you just can't be the manager anymore. And this is actually a very good practical lesson, (laughs) believe it or not. If you don't do a good job, you deserve to be fired. Okay, So just so you know that. Uh, And it's true in ministry as well. There are certain things. If there are proper ways of conducting yourself, there are improper ways of conducting yourself. There are proper ways of going about business. There are improper ways of going about business. And if you do not do a very good job, or if you're dishonest, or if you're crooked, or if you're wasteful, or if you're any number of things, if you receive consequences for that, just look in the mirror, don't blame anyone else, you reap what you sow, sometimes in a very practical business kind of way. You cannot give an account, you cannot be the manager any longer. And the manager takes quick stock of himself, and he says, well, what should I do now? Because I'm about to lose my job. And, he doesn't say this, but in our society, it is worth saying, there is no welfare. So it's not like, you. well, I'm going to lose my job, but at least I'm going to go, I'll just collect unemployment for a while. Uh, Or I'll just run down to the the local food bank. Or I'll apply for welfare. Or whatever. There is no social infrastructure. There is no safety net. And so when you lose your job, if you don't work, you don't eat. So this is a big deal. Uh, for this person. 
what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. And he sort of takes stock of himself and he says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm not, and I'm ashamed to beg. In other words, I have absolutely no marketable skills whatsoever. Obviously, he's not going to be manager again, uh, because if he apply, if he wants to be a manager, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to ask his previous master how he did at that job. So he's completely out of this sphere forever, and he's not able to do anything else. Now, I really can't relate to that. You know, not strong enough to dig. Come on, you know, like I, I could do that so easily, uh, except that I choose not to. You know? So you, you sort of you, you you look at that and. I actually do resonate with that because believe it or not, being a pastor, uh, being a theological teacher, people in the world aren't looking for that skill set. I'm not sure if you know that. You know, Fortune 500 companies very rarely, very rarely put out job descriptions where they're like, you know, we really want someone to come in who has skills in accounting and exegeting Colossians. You know, like usually it is, there's not looking for that sort of thing, right? And, and even yesterday, our, our washer and dryer, uh, both have been just limping along and, and slowly, they've been sort of in a palliative care situation over the last couple months. We've sort of been just sort of nursing them along and, and, and they finally, they're, they're done. So I was a little bit worried, you know, when, when smoke starts coming out of your washer, that's time to get a new washer. Like, at least according to Heather. I was like, we could still do it. You know, let's, let's get another couple weeks. But so, you know, we ordered this washer and dryer and, and I said, oh yeah, great. So they deliver it. They take away your old ones and then they hook up the new ones, which is fantastic. So they come in and, and they bring the stuff. They take the ones out. They bring the stuff down. And they say, oh, well, well, we can't hook these up. What? What are you talking about? Well, these, these old rubber hoses that you have. They have to be steel or we can't connect them. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, thanks for telling me that, Home Depot. You know, like when we made this arrangement, that would have been really nice to know at that time. And then they look at the dryer. Oh, that's not an aluminum pipe vent, so we can't touch that. You know, oh, so really, there's no installation whatsoever that you're going to do. Uh, yeah, that's that's basically right. Oh, that's very helpful. So thanks, guys. So then I run down to Home Depot where they know me by my first name because I do so many handyman projects around the house. So I will get, and you can tell, like, they, they kind of roll their eyes. When you have to ask where everything is, they know that they can sell you anything and you're going to come back because you don't know how to put it together anyway. You know, so you go in and I say, where's this? Where's this? They're very helpful. They get the stuff for me. It's wonderful. I go home and I have to just hook up the washer and the dryer. You know what? It's harder than you think it is. Like, you have to, like, screw things onto things, and, you know, there is this clamp I needed to put onto uh, this hose that the washer shoots water out of or something, and and you needed a pair of pliers to do that, like, you need to squeeze the end of the clip, and it opens it up, and it slides on, and, like, that would have been really great. So, I don't know what pair of pliers, I, so I, like, I'm trying to figure out another way of doing this, and it's just absolutely awful. So I finally hook it all up. Now, the, the most frustrating part, though, actually, was the aluminum, you know, this new aluminum piping thing, because I don't know, like, and I'm, this is kind of a serious question, and I don't want to offend anyone who actually designed these, but they both have the identical circumference. So, like, if, if one was a little smaller and one was a little wider, they would, like, fit together. 
But they don't. They, they actually perfectly just hit each other. Who designed that? Like, like, I'm trying to, you have to connect them. So why would you have them the exact same circumference at the ends? That's ridiculous. So I'm trying to bend it and fit it in and, then I'm hoping that there's batteries in the CO2 detector in the house, but there probably aren't. You know, and so you're trying to do all this, and, you're, and, and I realize something. If I get fired from being a pastor, I, I have no other job. Like, there is nothing I can do. Nothing! And I don't even do that good of a job at this job. So, like, this is, my, my career window is very small. You know, there's a very limited opportunity for me in this world. Well, that, that's what this manager is saying. I mean, he's saying, I really, I can't do anything else. And I, I, I don't want to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. I, I'm not going to do that. So what am I going to do? See, his, his concern, rightly, is for his future. He is thinking about his future. And he's realizing he doesn't have any. He has no options here. So he figures out a way to obligate people to take care of him in the future. He calls in these debtors and he says to them, all right, listen, I have my book and you have the bill that I gave you. You sit down and you change your bill and I'm going to change the book. I'm going to change the account. I'm going to change the ledger. You change your bill so that they match up. And then the master is not going to be able to do anything about it. Our books are going to be in sync. So quickly sit down, take your bill what was it? 900 gallons of olive oil? Okay, well, let's just cut that in half. Let's make it 450. Uh, now, at this point, too, this we're talking about uh, in terms of the oil, the oil is worth over a year's salary at this time. So this, is, this is not insignificant, that quantity. The wheat, which he doesn't reduce quite as much, but he takes, you know, he takes a thousand bushels and makes it 800. That quantity of wheat is worth about several years salary. So this is, this is a big thing. This is a lot of money. This is a lot of wealth bound up. This is not just little small nickel and diming operations. These are big sort of agricultural trade deals that are going on worth, in our, you know, in, in our day, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is really big. And so he knows though that if he, if he can just work it out with these debtors, they're going to be happy because they just saved a pile of money in terms of repayment. But now they also are obligated to him. And so he's put himself in a position for kickbacks. He's put himself in a position. He says, they'll have to welcome me into their home. I'm not going to need to beg because I'm going to be able to live in their guest room for six months or whatever it is. He's making sure that these people are obligated to take care of him in the future. Because they're complicit in the crime. So now they can't turn him out, and he can actually blackmail them too. They can't turn him out without being exposed themselves. Now, the master commends the dishonest manager not for his dishonesty. He doesn't say, hey, that's great lying. But he commends him because he acted shrewdly. In other words, he considered the future. He saw he was in trouble. And he orchestrated a situation so that he would be taken care of, at least for some time. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, this is very important. Jesus is not saying 
that what he did was good or acceptable or morally right. All he is saying is that it was shrewd. It was shrewd. Shrewdness can be sort of an amoral category. It just depends what you're doing. It depends what system you're in. For the children of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. So what he's, he's not saying that their kind are the right kind of people to, to be doing business with. He's not saying that this is the right system to be in, but he's saying that these people in the world, there's some people who, if you sort of look around, they're really good at getting things done in the world. There are people who are in politics who know how to get things done in politics. They're very good in terms of of greasing the wheel. They're very good in terms of getting things accomplished. They know who to talk to. They know who to bribe. They know how to get things done. So there's a political shrewdness, but that does not equal a political righteousness. People in the worldly system, some people are really good at getting things done. There are some people in business who are really, really good at making a whole pile of money, and they do it unethically. But they're shrewd. They can spot a deal. They can see someone's weakness. They can figure out how to advantage themselves. They can figure out how to get leverage. They're all really good at that. But Jesus here says, okay, by analogy, think about shrewdness. Think about wisdom. In the book of James chapter 13, we're actually told there are two types of wisdom. We are told that there is a wisdom which is from above, from God. And it is marked by fruit, peace, righteousness, etc. But we're also told that there is a wisdom from the devil. There is a wisdom that is demonic. And so we can get a lot of things done in the world through demonic wisdom. Because it's a demonic system. And if you want to get along and be somebody in a demonic system, then you use demonic values and demonic wisdom, and that's how you'll get ahead. So Jesus here says... There are some people in the world who are really good at knowing how the world works. In fact, there are people in the world who are who know so who are so intimate with how the world works and are so good at getting things done in the world that they put us to shame because see, we're not people of the world. So all of those ethics, all the like that, that's not what we're like. But we also should be people who know in our worldview context, in our kingdom reality, we should know how to deal with our own kind. We should know how to deal with people of the light because we're not people of the world anymore. So this dishonest manager is someone who knows how to get along and get things done in his system. But of course, Jesus rejects that whole system. He rejects that whole approach to life. He rejects all of those categories. To be literally a son of this world, Jesus says, for the sons of this world, because they belong to the world. That's not a positive thing to hear from Jesus. And he puts them in clear distinction and contrast from the people of the light. This dishonest steward, he's not someone who, who, he doesn't belong to the light. He belongs to the world. He's a son of the world. He knows how to get things done in the world. So learn that in systems, there are certain ways to get things done. But figure out what system you're in. Because it's the difference between light and darkness. Between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. But if you are in the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is saying to the disciples, 
then you need to figure out how to live. In this new world order. And how do you do that? Verse 9, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, what on earth does that mean? How do I use worldly wealth to gain friends so that I'm welcomed into eternity? And this, this seems to actually run against a lot of what Jesus has said about possessions and all the rest. Well, the only way that I can figure it is that what Jesus is saying here is that there is a way, in the same way that the dishonest steward used wealth to create relationships and obligations with these debtors. They're sort of compatriots in crime. They're friends in evil. There's even honor among thieves, as the old expression goes. He knows how to, in sin, create relationships. We as believers, as children of the light, need to use all of the resources that God gives us in order to build relationships as well. But we do it not for selfish gain, but to be blessings to others. So that we are called to use the money, to use the wealth, to use the resources, to use the gifts, to use the energy, to use the minds, to use everything God has given us. Not for self-indulgence, but to be a blessing to other people. This is Genesis 12 again. God calls Abraham, and then that sort of that fundamental covenant is that you will be blessed, and you will be a blessing. Your seed will be a blessing to all nations on earth. And so we aren't to look at our possessions as things God gives us so that we can just sort of live in different levels of relative luxury. We are to look at everything that God gives us, including our money, as a tool that we are to use to bless other people. So we're not sort of crassly sort of costing it in an economic sense. Like, well, you know, $2,500 buys me one friend, and so I'll figure out how to spend that money. I'll just buy a friend, you know, or or whatever. But it's genuinely looking for ways to bless other people. And, And as children of the light, then... One of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to bless the world in practical material ways. Yes, 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 yes. But the real point is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into lives. And that's why, you know, one of, one of, I think an excellent example of this is one of the missionaries, of course, that we support, Matt and Megan Durkee. And in Africa, they drill wells because people need water. To live physically. But they don't just drill wells and then sort of leave, you know, staple a tract to it and walk away. They drill wells and they share the gospel. They drill wells and they work with the pastor. They drill wells because people need H2O, but they also need the water of life who is Jesus Christ, and they need to know the one who, if you drink from him, you'll be so satisfied you will never thirst again. That's what people really need. But how do you, how do you drill wells? Well, you need a drill rig. Where does that come from? I don't know. 
That wasn't a rhetorical question. I was hoping someone was going to tell me. Uh, factory? I don't know. Uh, the people, someone makes it, a, you know, I would assume. And then do the people who make drill rigs just, you know, call up the jerky and say, hey, great, great news. We just had a new, dri- a, a new drill rig that we made. We, it's on the factory floor. Uh, all we do is we just exist to make, you know, these kinds of machines and send them for free to missionaries. Like, is that how it works? Of course not. You need to buy it. Well, how, what do you buy it with? Money. Well, where does the money come from? You. Because as children of light, you are using the resources that God has given you to do things to bless other people. That is, to make friends. Why? So that, as the old hymn says, when we all get to glory, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus. Well, who is that all? That's people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language welcoming you into the presence of the Lamb. And so we use everything God has given us, every single thing, not for ourselves, not to build our own business, but we use it for God. We use it to make friends so that people can know the gospel. We use it to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And this is very true. You see, see, integrity is not about how much you have. I think for a lot of us, to be very honest, I think a lot of us, if you are anything like me, you are shockingly generous with money that you don't have. Like, I am, you know, if I ever win the lottery... Which would be difficult because I don't, I don't play. But if I were to win, and I'm always hoping that someday someone's like sort of as an ironic Christmas gift is going to give me a lottery ticket so I didn't buy it, but then it's the winner. I can still collect the money in good conscience. Like I always, I always have, I always think that's going to happen, you know, or, you know, I, I never eat at McDonald's, but now, you know, I drove by the other day and it's Monopolies at McDonald's or whatever. You know what? So maybe just eat several Big Macs a day, you know, not to gamble. But if you happen to get, you know, if you happen to win McDonald's Monopoly, that's okay too. You know, it's a, so some way of getting lots and lots and lots of money, maybe installing washers and dryers on the side or something. I don't know. You know, so, so, so you get, and you know what, if I, if I have, if I ever get all of that money, what I do with it is amazing. I, I give, I give to the church. I, I give overseas. You know, it's, I am the most generous guy in the world, with money that I don't have. And I hope that I'm judged for that in a positive way. But integrity is not about, oh, when I get there, it's it's what, okay, Steve, God says, I I don't care what you would do with this fantasy money, but what are you doing with the actual money that you have? Because that's integrity. That's, I don't need to give you millions of dollars to know what's in your heart. I, I can give you one dollar and find out what's in your heart. I can give you nothing and find out what's in your heart. Uh, I can give you any any level of any economics at all will show you what's in your heart. Because you don't need to be rich to be greedy. There are all kinds of really, really poor people who are covetous wretches who are consumed with jealousy because they want what other people have. And there are all kinds of wealthy people who are very generous and, and very content and would be very content with far less. It has nothing to do with the heart. 
But if, if you're, if you have a bad attitude, a corrupt attitude towards the things of this world, then it doesn't matter how much you have. If you're dishonest with a little bit, you'll be dishonest with a lot because you're dishonest. That's your character. If you spin the truth, if you, instead of, if you're always trying to spin, if you're always trying to work your way around, if you're always trying to like work the system, then you're just unethical. You're just dishonest. That's all there is to it. Dishonest about little things, dishonest about big things. Doesn't make any difference. You're a liar. If you're greedy, you're greedy. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter. The only difference is some people are just more successful in satisfying their greed than others. But still the same heart. Still the same problem. So if you're dishonest with a little bit, you'll be dishonest with a lot too. Steve, God would say, if you're not generous with what I've given you, you're not going to be generous if you win the lottery. It's nice to think that you will be. It's nice to think that you are so deceived you can imagine you would be. But look at yourself now. You think that's going to change? Of course it's not going to change. You'll, you'll find ways. You'll, you'll figure it out. Because it's your heart. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? But I thought worldly wealth was true riches. No, it's not. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? In other words, if you can't handle stuff here in this world, do you really think God's going to bless you with rewards in heaven? Do you really think that if you can't be honest now, that you're going to be honest then? Like, it's a heart orientation. So why Jesus will say, you know, to store up your treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now hear that. What Jesus is saying is, listen, Pick your treasure. Because wherever you put, whatever treasure you pick, guaranteed, that's where you're going to run. So you can say that you're living for heaven. But if your treasure really is on earth, that is if your heart is really about this world, about this stuff, that's where your heart is. That's where your treasure is. You pick your treasure, your heart follows every time. And so we want to be careful about that. We want to pick our treasure very carefully. Because wherever we actually put our affections, that's where we're going to be. And oh, what a, what a danger, what a temptation to live for the things of this world. But if you do that, then your heart's not here. You're a son of the world, not a child of light. If you're not trustworthy with this stuff, you're not going to be trustworthy with real stuff. Real stuff. Isn't that great? Real stuff. The real thing. One of the very helpful things to do is whatever whatever you buy, whatever you buy, realize that it is there's going to be a point where it's not going to be used anymore. Certainly not by you. No, whenever you when you whenever you walk into your house, you are not the last person who will live there. There are going to come other people who will live in those rooms, who will use that kitchen. It, it'll stand there if it's well, but it'll stand there after you're dead. That car that you bought, it's not going to last forever. You know, the, those clothes that you wear, they're not going to last forever. Well, like, I'm going to try for me, you know. Uh, but uh, it's not going to last forever, and, and styles and fashions will change and come and go and all of the rest. And I'm going to be dressed exactly the same way no matter what they are. But, uh, you know, it's not going to last. It doesn't last. It's not real. This is not all this stuff. It's just, it has an illusion of reality. But it's all going to it's all going to burn. It's, none of it's going to come through the judgment. 
So do you want real stuff? Do you want real property? Then figure out how to deal as a steward with what God gives you now. And then this very, very strong claim. No one can serve two masters. No one. You are not the exception to this. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. You can't. And there's no, well, I kind of like both. Do you notice that? You hate the one, you love the other. You're devoted to one or you despise the other. No sort of third position, no one foot in each camp, no best of the world now, best of heaven later. If your heart treasure is here, you hate God. That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus says. So be very careful where you pick your treasure. You cannot serve both God and money. Why? Because fundamentally, they belong to different systems. And so if you are interested in the bottom line more than you are interested with honoring God, or if you are interested in generating funds more than you are interested in honoring God, then generating funds in this world will cause you to do things that are not pleasing to God. And you will reject God to be under the lordship of the bottom line. And we wear ourselves out for money. How much effort do we put into honoring God and walking with him? Our world is, our society is filled to saturation with consumerism, debt, thinking about wealth portfolios and all of the rest. How much of that same energy is put into following God? and honoring him and building the kingdom, even in the evangelical church, even in our midst. But you will not be the exception to this. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees love money. Let us not think they're the only ones. Heard all this and were staring at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. God knows who you really are. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This word detestable is the strongest term in the Old Testament for something God hates. And sometimes it's translated in older versions as an abomination. What people value highly is an abomination to God. Now what do people value highly? Money. Success, reputation, security, power, what people think about them. And all of those things really run around pride and self-centeredness and idolatry. And so Jesus says, God, God hates that. God looks at what the world values highly and he says, it's an abomination. It's detestable in his sight. And if you will love what is detestable to God, then it shows that you hate God. Now, I'm not, I'm not making up that vocabulary, right? Like, that's what the text says. So if we're going to be faithful to what Jesus says, we're going to have to use those, that language. It's what he says. And that is meant to be very, very, very sobering. You're going to want to listen to that very carefully. But, you are also going to want to see 
that that very sober warning falls with a second lesson being drawn out of it, which is that you don't need to live that way, guys. You don't need to live that way. You don't need to be submerged in the system. You don't need to live in this fleeting world of, of sort of illusion and vanity. You can live for real things. You can live for glory. You can live for heaven. You can li- live for real friends. You, you can live for a real savior. You can really live in light. You can honor the Lord. Your life can count. It can be meaningful. The way that you use your wealth and finances can actually have literally eternal significance for all the world. So let's live that way. Let's jettison this old system. Let's be honest about how it easily entangles our hearts and pulls us back down to earth. Can we be honest about that? Can we be honest that in a society which is as materialistic as ours, we're all going to have a really hard time probably starting to parse some of this out because the environment that we live in is just so saturated with this? Like, Can we just be honest about it? That there is no sin except which is common to all of us and and none of us probably have it completely figured out when we're looking at the balance of money and wealth and where's my heart really and, and all of the rest. Let's just be honest about that. Because when we're honest about that, then we can come to God and we can acknowledge that we're struggling and we can ask for forgiveness and we can ask for help. And we can ask for clarity. Lord, help me to live. Help me to see. How, what do you want me to do with this stuff? It's yours anyway. I'm just your steward. I'm just your manager. And I want to do this ethically. I want to do it right. I want to honor you. So that when I get to glory, I want the things that you gave me here in this world, these temporal material things, I want them to count for spiritual good forever. That's what I want. And you know what, Lord? I'm not wise enough and I'm too sinful to do that on my own. I need your spirit to lead me. Open your word. Show me your truth so that I can use this stuff for eternal good. That is an awesome way to live. You cannot serve both God and money. You might hate God, but the other thing is you might love God. Isn't that great? You, you, you might really love God and live in a relationship with him uh, where he takes care of you forever and ever. Don't justify yourself. Let God justify you in Christ. Uh, don't care about what other people think. Care about what God thinks. He knows your heart. He knows what you do and why you do it. Well, may God help us. May God help us to see not only the vanity of the world system. But truly, may he help us to see the glory and the light and the beauty and the vibrant wonder of living in this world with eternity's values in mind. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.